Hi everyone, my name is Naomi Shah. I'm the Web Committee Director for the American Thoracic Society's Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology Assembly. Very excited today to bring this podcast to you on academic sleep medicine, past, present, and future. I'm interviewing two well-established, well-known leaders in the field, Dr. Atul Malhotra and Dr. Eileen Rosen. We begin by interviewing Dr. Atul Malhotra. My name is Atul Malhotra. I was president of the American Thoracic Society in 2015-2016. I'm a professor at University of California, San Diego, and I'm research chief for pulmonary critical care and director of sleep medicine. So today's discussion is about academic sleep medicine, past, present, and future, and with really an emphasis on the future. And as someone who's been in the field for the last few decades, I was hoping you could summarize for our listeners the major changes that the field of academic sleep medicine has faced since you completed your fellowship, specifically if you can talk about the very small pipeline of both clinicians and scientists in sleep medicine. Yeah, I'm happy to address that. So I finished uh, pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine training in the year 2000, I believe. And I remember being at a meeting and there was a group of young people there uh, sitting around the table, and we said, hey, we, we could be the future of, of the field. And what's a bit disappointing is 20 years later, it's kind of the same people. There, there hasn't been a, a major pipeline of young people coming into the field, uh, despite our best efforts, and so that that is a concern. Uh, a lot has changed over time in terms of uh, um, the people coming in and, and, and other things. I think changes in reimbursement for polysomnography have changed the incentive structure for who wants to do sleep and who doesn't want to do sleep. I think in general, the uh, academic physician scientist is, is getting harder to um, uh, to maintain and with all the pressure on academic physicians now to produce RVUs and all that, there's less and less time for uh, NIH grants and for publications and all that. So I think the trend over time has been um, that things have gotten tougher in, in, in some ways. So as a sports fan, you had mentioned in another interview the importance of a strong draft. How do we ensure the future of sleep medicine has a strong draft? Yeah, I, I do like the analogy to sports in, in many cases, including uh, including this one. So I think getting good uh, draft choices is the uh, key to a successful team in the, in the long run, where you have young talent that's with you for, for many years down the road. Uh, I feel like my lab has been blessed over the years. We've had some very good talent um, uh, some international, some some domestic, uh, who've gone on to have productive careers and, and independence and all that. But when I look around uh, the field, it's not there aren't huge numbers in terms of uh, uh, junior people that are joining and becoming uh, independent physician scientists. And um, how do we help to ensure that? I, I really don't know. If I did, I'd probably uh, be doing a better job of it. I think part of it is getting young people to understand how exciting our, our, our field can be. I think uh, sleep medicine is an exciting area. When I first went into this about 20 years ago, people made fun of me saying, why you know, why is a hardcore critical care guy spending their time thinking about sleep? And now uh, there's so much in the lay press and in, of, in general, of general interest to people that um, sleep medicine is important that I no longer have to justify it. I think people realize it's an, an important area. But I think maybe the um, education needs to start early. My, my kids in junior high school, um, in high school, they, they're starting to learn about sleep and why it's important for learning and memory and all that. I think we need more in college, more in medical school. And I think if people come through training with the mindset that it's important, then 
it's less of a sell in terms of why uh, why it's important and why it's exciting because those things become self-evident. I think just in general as well, uh, showing people the excitement of an academic career can be helpful. The camaraderie you get and the excitement you get with new discoveries and, and things can be very uh, gratifying. And I love patient care. I enjoy seeing patients, but uh, I, I like the, the mix and the balance that I have currently. Just as a follow-up to that, you, as a past ATS president, um, can you talk about what you and other presidents in the past at ATS have done in, in ensuring that we do have the brightest minds applying for a fellowship in pulmonary critical care sleep medicine, some of the initiatives you've launched, specifically as it pertains to the future of academic sleep medicine? Yeah, so one of my uh, foci as ATS president was on the next generation, and the slogan was we're trying to attract and retain the best and brightest into our field, and that includes pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. So we had programs throughout the spectrum of uh, training to encourage people to come to ATS and to meet key opinion leaders and other things. We had a student scholars program where we allowed um, medical students and graduate students and others to come to the meeting for free and to be paired up with a mentor and, and, and meet people um, at, at the international conference and, in some cases, that go on to uh, uh, develop an excitement about our field and, and hopefully showing up in our laboratories down the road and becoming eventually independent uh, physician scientists. Uh, we also have a resident boot camp, which Laura Crotty Alexander started, and it continues today, very popular, where residents who are going into pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine get um, some advanced training at the international conference where um, they learn some of the cutting-edge uh, ideas and also get hopefully excited about the academic process, and so that was for residents. There's a fellows track symposium, which was um, has been in place for some time, and that's also been uh, a source of excitement for many people where they get academic training in our field of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine for fellows, and now there have been some more recent initiatives for junior faculty as well. We also had a global scholars program where people through webinars were learning uh, material around the world uh, in under-resourced areas and other places. So uh, various mentoring programs as well, which are stronger in some assemblies than in others, but I think uh, SRN, Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology, has done well with some of those mentoring programs where junior people are paired with more senior people and show the academic process and uh, uh, I think there's been some success in those areas as well. So we've tried sort of a multifaceted approach at targeting people at all different levels of training, and I think some success stories, time will tell how many end up becoming uh, leaders of our field, but I think uh, we've taken the right approach, I believe. Yeah, I agree. I think it's uh, it's really important to have a source of, uh, you know, bright minds coming into the field. Um a follow-up question, how many, at least in terms of the early numbers, do we have a sense of how many of these programs have resulted in a pipeline for fellowship for pulmonary critical care, um, and how many of those then pursue sleep medicine, or do we just not have those numbers? Uh, I think the short answer is it's too soon to tell. We did do some surveys from the Student Scholars Program. Eileen Larson with ATS staff was uh, instrumental in that. And uh, the early returns were that more than 50% of uh, participants expressed an interest in uh, participating in our field of pulmonary critical care or sleep medicine. For some of the smaller fields, like for pediatrics or for sleep medicine, 
um, it was say up to ten particip- participants in the program. You might say, well, it's only ten people, but you know, ten people, ten extra people in our field is a big number because uh, it's a small field. And so, for pediatric pulmonary, they were quite excited to see that number. I thought ten people, medical students who hadn't previously been interested, uh, eventually showing up in in a sleep fellowship, I think, would be a good result. It's too soon to tell if they actually eventually end up there and if they end up in our laboratories and publishing and all that. I don't know, but but I think the early returns were reassuring that we were taking the right approach. Great. So I think another follow-up question to that is sort of the relevance of the pulmonary critical care medicine's connection with sleep medicine. So how dependent are we as academic sleep medicine um, faculty or institutions on uh, feed, for lack of a better word, from pulmonary critical care medicine? How dependent are we? Um, that question is a little bit hard to answer. I'll tell you my bias is that um, uh, you know some of the top people in our field aren't trained in pulmonary. They come from neuroscience backgrounds or PhDs from from psychology or, or other areas, and so certainly I wouldn't judge uh, that one group is better than another. For my own laboratory, I think the bulk of uh, the success of that is through or success my trainees have had are through the pulmonary route and. We did have a sleep medicine fellowship when I was in Boston at, at, the, at the Brigham, um, and I understand that recently uh, was restarted. But at the time we were there, we, we didn't uh, attract the, um, the the applicants we were looking for at the time. We had some very good people come through, but uh, very few went on to academic uh, careers. On the other hand, the people that came through pulmonary and critical care training tended to be the the more academic uh, uh, groups, and so not to judge one group over another, but at least for me personally in my lab that does applied physiology, we had more success getting uh, top candidates through pulmonary critical care training than through other means. Related to that, so I guess those of us that are in the pulmonary critical care uh, field and have seen sort of that natural progression from fellowship to sleep medicine fellowship and then um, a unified division, you know, of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. So in your opinion, is sleep medicine truly a third pillar of a pulmonary critical care sleep medicine division? And is it weighed equally from a leadership perspective? And how important is that for the survival of the future of academic sleep medicine? And this doesn't have to be pertinent to your specific institution, but just because of your history and your involvement in this field, I think it would be helpful for our listeners. Yeah, I think um, it does certainly vary with the institution. I think uh, historically, sleep medicine was perhaps not given equal footing. Um, I won't name names, but there are programs that use the revenue from sleep medicine and from polysomnography, and there was considerable revenue from that in, in some cases, and that was being used to subsidize other portions of pulmonary critical care, and so in that sense, sleep was sort of a cash cow for the rest of the division not really given equal footing. I had the um, good fortune at Brigham Women's Hospital to be able to use some of the revenue that was being generated clinically to sort of reinvest in in young people and in young talent. And so that, uh, I think, was successful. We developed a lot of young talent there that I'm very proud of in terms of their uh, future success. It's become a lot tougher now, though, because the revenues have been cut and the margins are much thinner than they were in the past, and so I think the days of sleep medicine as a big cash cow are sort of over. Uh, but um, at the same time, I think there's increasing recognition that what sleep medicine does is important. 
I know many divisions where the outpatient volumes from sleep are actually larger than they are for pulmonary now, and so I think many divisions do give sleep medicine adequate attention. Whether it's an equal pillar, I think probably varies with the institution. There are many sleep medicine specialists who feel undervalued, but um, perhaps that's the nature of outpatient medicine in general, the way things are reimbursed these days. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then in your opinion, does the future of academic sleep medicine involve a separate division for most institutions? Should we be thinking about that? And how do you feel about um, a move like that or transformation and the challenges and benefits uh, for academic sleep medicine? Yeah, I have sort of mixed feelings about it. I was, as I mentioned, part of the Brigham Women's uh, Division when it, when the sleep medicine division separated. I know University of Pennsylvania has had a separate sleep medicine division. If I were in a situation where the sleep medicine revenue was being siphoned off to pay for other uh, activities, then I could certainly see the value in, in, in being isolated to some extent. Uh, on the other hand, uh, isolated might be the right word in the sense that if you have a whole division that's predicated on polysomnography reimbursement, then um, it becomes very uh, vulnerable and very hard to, to sustain. Uh, on the other hand, if you can develop a robust uh, research portfolio and it can be sort of self-funded as a research division, that, then that may be a different situation. My, my mm-hmm. personal bias is that um, because the source of trainees through pulmonary critical care has been very important for me, at least over the years, in terms of my trainees, I, I'm more happy being linked to a pulmonary critical care division than being separated or isolated. <clears throat> Similarly, the American Thoracic Society has been my major uh, professional society, and um, the links between respiratory physiology and cellular molecular biology, other things that have been very relevant for my research over the years, I've learned a lot from other people at ATS that are potentially outside the sleep field, and so that um, involvement with a broader community has been very useful for me, at least uh, intellectually and, and scientifically. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of a resident that's going into a pulmonary critical care fellowship, given how important it is for us to continue to encourage them to pursue sleep medicine as an extra year of fellowship, you know, why would a resident or a first-year fellow pursue sleep medicine fellowship given the extra year of training especially when you consider their starting salary will likely be lower than their critical care peers. So I was wondering if you can comment for our listeners your perspective on why they should continue to pursue that, especially not just from an academic perspective, but also from a financial perspective. Yeah, I may be in the the minority on this one, but I I didn't personally do a a one-year sleep medicine fellowship. I did uh, robust training, I think, in sleep medicine, primarily research, but I did clinical training along the way. And um, I trained in in the early 2000s when the grandfather clauses were still open and I was able to get board certified in sleep medicine. Um, mm-hmm. And again, perhaps I'm in the minority, but one of the comments I make somewhat flippantly is that the majority of people in the sleep field are didn't do a one-year fellowship. And some people say, well, unless you've done a one-year fellowship, you can't be competent, but the, the vast majority of us don't, don't fall in that category. You might say that's a historical perspective where people now are being uh, uh, subjected to that extra one year, but I sort of have mixed feelings about it. I, I remember at the time a, a PGY-8 year of uh, after angel medicine after four years of pulmonary critical care to do an additional year of um, sleep medicine fellowship may or may not be uh, that helpful. 
I know Eileen Rosen, who you're going to interview um, later, is working through um, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and through the uh, American Board of Medical Specialties to look at other ways of board certification so perhaps people could uh, reopen some of those experience pathways such that people could get potential training in sleep medicine um, after pulmonary critical care with, with adequate supervision in a recognized program. And I think I, I advocate for those sort of avenues because I think the more pipelines into our field, the better in terms of, uh, um, you know, what's what's good for our field eventually. And I, I do think that um, if people are supervised in the right way and, and it's done in a rigorous manner, that people can get good training in academic sleep medicine, both the clinical side and the research side, using multiple different pathways. Next, I asked Dr. Malhotra to comment on his journey in the American Thoracic Society, both as member of committees, but also as uh, president of the American Thoracic Society. I was wondering if you can share with our listeners how that journey helped shape you, but also how you were able to then impact the future of academic sleep medicine via the various programs that you were able to launch um, not just as the president, but also in the entire time that you were involved in the ATS? Well, I'm not grandiose enough to think that, <laughs> that I've sort of changed the history of, of sleep medicine to, to that extent, but you know, I've done my best over time to uh, try and develop new programs. So through the, uh, I was initially as chair of the education committee some years ago, and I did impact uh, the, the program of, of the ATS through that uh, thing uh then I was program chair and then assembly chair for uh for the sleep assembly over time and did my best to do programming and attract uh talent to the to the meeting and then as i mentioned the five years on, on the executive committee i was committed to the next generation and some of these programs to attract young people into the field um it only takes one or two of those people to to make a major impact for me to really feel good about the uh the results there so I'm aware of one young woman who got excited about our field based on um, uh, the interaction she had through our student scholars program, and she met a Nobel laureate who started working with her on some project. It's premature to say whether that's going to be successful or not, but but whether it is or not, to me, it was exciting to uh, have that sort of interaction. And if I had even a small role in facilitating it, I you know feel really good about that. So mm-hmm. um, I think uh, th- there are plenty of ways along the way that um, I've tried to influence things in a, in a positive way. Whether it's successful or not, I'll let other people judge. And finally, Dr. Malhotra will summarize for us the key takeaway messages from the discussion that I had with him today. One is uh, the pipelines. The lack of young people coming into our field is a problem. On the other hand, it's also an opportunity. So if you're a junior person that wants to make a name for themselves, you can do it more easily in sleep medicine than in other uh, areas. So I often joke that uh, had I picked another field, you probably never would have heard of me just because it was in sleep medicine and it was a smaller uh, kind of community. It became more prominent more quickly. So so that one is the pipeline. Uh, two is the reimbursement models. I think um, healthcare reform is affecting all of us in different ways. Um, as I mentioned before, the margins on polysonography and home sleep testing and these things have become thinner over time. So how um, to monetize a, a career in an important way is uh, is an important question. So there are individuals I know about who are getting offered faculty positions, but they're doing 
seven or eight clinics per week or then very busy clinically and it becomes very hard to have any time to, to breathe or for academics or for other things if the clinical load is that large. And in the past people were able to subsidize their revenue with revenue from polysomnography and home sleep testing, but I think that's much less um uh that's much less true today. Uh and number three that is both a, a challenge as well as an opportunity is just sort of the global burden of disease. We we've estimated there may be a billion people worldwide with obstructive sleep apnea who need to be diagnosed and treated. And the current model of trying to send everybody through a sleep center uh, is not going to work for a billion people. And so there have to be alternative models using either biomarkers or using wearable technologies or other things. Now, the cynic might say, well, we don't need sleep medicine if we can get everything through a wearable. But my bias is the opposite. I think there will be lots of opportunities uh, the more people being diagnosed, the more kind of refractory cases or tough cases will come in. And with increasing awareness of sleep and sleep issues, I think there'll always be a role for sleep medicine specialists. So I think people see the models changing over time. But as I say, wherever there's a risk, there's an opportunity as well. What an amazing discussion with Dr. Malhotra. Next, I'm talking with Dr. Eileen Rosen about academic sleep medicine, past, present, and future. Hi, I'm Eileen Rosen. I am a sleep medicine physician at the University of Pennsylvania, where I am also the program director of our sleep medicine fellowship, and I am currently the immediate past president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. So, Dr. Rosen, as the immediate past president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and pertinent to this podcast, where we're we're trying to understand essentially the future of academic sleep medicine, I'm wondering if you can summarize um, the Academy's vision for the future of academic sleep medicine. So um, the the ASM really has a, um, a an overall vision for the entire field of sleep medicine, which is inclusive of academic sleep medicine, of course. Um, you know, right now, insufficient sleep and untreated sleep disorders are public health problems that continue to have drastic impact on the health of our nation. And um, the goal of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine is to um, ensure sleep health and promoting high-quality patient-centered care um, through advocacy, education, strategic research, and practice standards. Um, And so in order to encompass all of that, our approach for um, academic um, sleep medicine um, specifically is to encourage more people to go into our field, think about the pipeline, and then also um, help um, encourage scientific investigation, um, not only through the ASM directly, but through our foundation, the ASM Foundation. Next, I asked Dr. Eileen Rosen what, in her opinion, are the major challenges that the future of academic sleep medicine faces? There's probably several components to my answer to this. Um, So, one of the issues is that um, something that was great for our field, the fact that we became recognized as our own discipline um, with uh, recognition from the um, ACGME, from the um, Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education, along with the American Board of Medical Specialties, that validated our field and our discipline, but at the same time added adds on an extra dedicated year of training that 
I think there, an unintended consequence of that is that individuals who were traditionally going into sleep medicine and academic sleep medicine through pulmonary and critical care fellowships and even from neurology training programs don't necessarily want to add that extra year. So I think that's one issue. And then the other issue is that um, in many academic programs that have sleep medicine um, clinical or academic programs, we're not often exposed to the core feeder specialties because of the the hospital um, requirements for inpatient service and clinical needs. And so many times um, individuals don't see us until they're further along in their training um, and in more the elective phase, and by then they've become somewhat differentiated already. And then another issue is that I think um, in the last decade for sure, um, five, you know, five to seven years for sure, we've seen um, a, a reduction in reimbursement and a lot of in, in infringements on the way we practice, requiring a lot of um, paperwork and uh, tracking of n not patient data, but tracking of paperwork data to get our patients what they need, that it might not look so appealing to some of our um, trainees to think about going into sleep medicine. And then lastly, I'll say the, um, the Sleep Academic Award that I was initially started in the late 90s and went through the early 2000s, really tried to gain some traction in getting younger trainees interested in our field and to go on and do research in our field. And those efforts have not borne uh, fruit, I think, in the way it was anticipated. So I heard the fact that there's a year of fellowship, there's decreased reimbursement, there's this extra, you know, EHR or other regulatory requirements that yeah. Um, you know, we all are facing. Of those three, which one do you think is the biggest challenge, if you were to pick one? I would pick the pipeline. The issue with the pipeline is twofold. One, there's this perhaps lack of interest and exposure to our field. And in addition, we have already limited the number of slots there are. So there's only about 206 accredited slots in the U.S. at the moment, um, and we have a rate of retirees uh, or a, an amount of retirees per year that's a lot higher than that, like maybe seven times higher. Hmm. So the getting to even, and we haven't even filled those 206 slots that are available. So hmm. we don't have people that want to take those slots. Even if we filled them all, it would not meet the need of the people who are retiring, and that's somewhat balanced to what the public is now recognizing about sleep that took us maybe two decades to get there. So the demand has increased on the public health side um, and perhaps even on the research side, but the, but the um, supply of trainees to do this work um, is wet, way behind. And I think that's a crisis, quite frankly. On a positive note, the Academy has done a tremendous amount of work in inspiring more physicians and training to choose sleep. And one of them that I came across in an article that I had read um, that you had authored was um, ASM Innovative Fellowship Model Implementation Committee Formation, and then yeah. the specific uh, purposes and the objectives of those models. And so I was wondering if you can share what that is and how that's going to potentially help our uh, pipeline. Yeah, I'm, actually, I think this is a really exciting initiative, and I and hopefully it will take hold. So. When we think about maybe why people are not um, 
filling the slots we have or not seeing being so interested and you and you talk about what what has the requirement of an extra year not just that it's an extra year but it's an extra year of 12 months clinical straight through for somebody who might have done for example pulmonary and critical care um, training that doesn't and has done perhaps some research in those three years of pulmonary critical care training to then go back and 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 think clinically and not have actually thought about questions related to sleep and breathing, for example, um, because mm-hmm. because there's no continuity to how it happens. So there's the issue of that carve out, trying to find that carve out, and also this issue of people then also are seven years into training and may have other needs and things they want to go on and do. So with those things in mind, we um, created this um, Innovative Fellowship Models Committee to kind of think about, are there alternative pathways that we could propose or think about and go to the respective boards and the ACGME to think about? And while that committee was starting, um, we became aware of something called the um, AIR project from the Amer- uh, from the ACGME and AIR stands for Advancing Innovation in Residency Education. Um, and essentially what it is is that the ACGME recognizes that the landscape of how we train and how we assess trainees is changing and they asked for grassroots solutions from various programs and disciplines to think about. And mm-hmm. so this was a perfect timing for us. I actually think it was around a little bit before the committee was formed, but when you have a committee and you start paying attention to what your options are, that's how we found it. Um, and essentially what what we are proposing um, is, um, is two pathways, um, two alternative pathways. And I'll be clear in saying that these these pathways we hope would be additive to the 200 slots I mentioned before, and the way we're trying to ensure that is that none of the training I'm about to describe can be done at a place that doesn't already have a fellowship. So we we don't want to sort of uh, there's plenty of there's like I think something like 40% of U.S. medical schools don't have a fellowship program, and we wouldn't mm-hmm. want them to pick up these program these types of programs um, uh, at, at de novo. So at any rate, um, at the, it, The idea is um, two pathways. The first pathway is called the part-time model of training, and essentially that allows um, there to be a splitting up of how training is done in sleep. For example, somebody who's already a full-fledged pulmonary attending or critical care attending, never got a chance to do more sleep but has to work, has loans to pay, what have you, they could do 50% attending in their core specialty or in their trained subspecialty training and 50% time doing sleep fellowship. That could be in blocks of months or that could be in someone who says, well, I can't leave my practice for six months. Um, So that could be divided up over weeks. Hmm. And then um, this, and and you could imagine what's done in the other, right, in the non-sleep time can be whatever you want it to be. It could be taking care of your family. It could be um, doing the, you know, your core specialty, like I said. It could be research. Mm. So that um, that has the potential to help a- academic sleep medicine specifically. And then the, the second model is called the blended model. And what this means is that in 
uh, feeder, typically feeder specialties that have significant overlap with sleep, you could embed some of the 12 months that are required, um, some of the 12 months that are required for um, sleep training into that specialty. And so I, um, I will tell you, we tried to do this for um, all the all the fellowships that uh, from all the feeder specialties, and actually only two agreed to play, and that was the ABIM for adult pulmonary trainees, so I'll explain that in a second, and um, and then also the American Board of Pediatrics agreed to do this for PED, PEDS pulmonary training, pediatric pulmonary training. So for the, yeah, so for the, um, for a trainee who does pulmonary and critical care, their requirement is 36 months of training, of which 18 months is dedicated clinical, and then the other 18 months has some flexibility in it. And um, in addition, in those initial 18 months of clinical training, there is some percentage of sleep training that goes on, depending on your program and how you get it done. Mm -hmm. So if an individual does one month of sleep during those first 18 months, they could do the remaining 10 or 11 months during that last, those last 18 months. Um, or maybe they have research blocks that are required and other things that are required. They could do six months of their sleep training in those last 18 months plus the one or two they did in the first 18 months and only have, I can't do the math at the moment, but they get something like the next four or five months left with just a, a little bit of overflow into a fourth year without committing to a full fourth year. Right. And then what that also allows is that in programs that have research components that are mandatory, they could you could do a lot of the sleep up front so that your research had some sleep component to it, and hopefully that would help our field academically, the academic sleep mm-hmm. field. We next hear about the chances of this initiative being approved, the timeline, and the dedicated funds that the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has provided for this specific initiative. We believe that will be approved, and then mm-hmm. there's going to be a four- to five-year pilot. So the ASM has put aside $4 million in support of this, and the, the programs right now have been asked to, uh, mostly pulmonary working with sleep programs at the same institution, um, have been uh, asked to volunteer um, to participate in either the blended model or the part-time model as a pilot with one individual per program across the country. Hmm. And we, we've, we, we had about 10 names. We submitted six with the idea that we'll try to phase this out each year. And the money is going to be used for two things. One, these will be additional slots so that a program is that has one or two slots, this would be a third person in either program, and this would help pay their salary if needed. There would be a little bit of support for the programs, for some of the you know, clinical competency committees and other resources that have to be merged together. And then lastly, some of the money is going to be for centrally looking at competence um, to make sure that individuals in both the traditional program and these alternative programs are leaving with the same competency as assessed by some unified uh, group of individuals with the tools to do that. Next, I asked Dr. Eileen Rosen to comment on whether 
This new initiative will undo the progress we've made of establishing ourselves as our own discipline, and whether we're going back in time. I do. I do think it's a little bit of back to the future, um, quite frankly. So that, the, you know, the pushback is exactly in the blended model. What you say, like before, we had people um, doing. I, this is what I did. I trained in sleep as part of my um, pulmonary critical care fellowship. Um, where I trained, it was a little bit more than three years, but it wasn't an additional year on top of that. And what I would say is the difference now is that, um, one, we now know what, what the discipline needs. So the training, for example, for an adult in a pediatric world and vice versa for a pediatric pulmonologist to make sure they get the adult things they need and core competencies that we are assessing everybody for and being able to say we're graduating graduates from either model, if, if the pilot pans out, from either model all with the same tools. Um, and in the sense, if you're thinking about academic sleep medicine, what we do is bring back a group that wasn't, quite frankly, paying attention to sleep much anymore and getting them interested in it, not just because they did a dedicated one month in it, but also because they were seeing the aspects of sleep medicine throughout their pulmonary critical care training that often includes a research block. And mm -hmm. so um, provided that the way we assess them to be able to sit for the boards is the same um, and that we tell people you're not necessarily getting it in 36 months, you may need 40 months or you know, or up to a full 12 months after that because you're, you're not graduating until you're hitting competency. So it's mm -hmm. competency-based training and not time-based training. I don't think we're going backwards in time. I think we are facilitating a group that has overlap in experience and actually was becoming a two siloed groups of people, make, bringing them back together. Next, I asked Dr. Rosen to comment on the American Academies of Sleep Medicine's telemedicine platform and what, in her opinion, it's doing or not doing to enhance the pipeline. The reason I ask you this is because I'm very, you know, interested in it and I've sort of pushed for the last couple of years at my institution and I'm finally doing um, video visits uh, with my sleep medicine patients and I, I find it very helpful. I'm just wondering if, if that's something that's going to add to this um, discussion we're having in terms of encouraging more folks to choose sleep because it is, it's a really good option and, and in terms yeah. of efficiency but also for patient care. Yeah, so I, I think that in terms of how it will influence academic sleep medicine is that um, it will facilitate health services research, for example, in what's the best way to take care of patients who in a specialty that has a lot of technology in it. So we're, we're we're very primed to think about telemedicine added to our care. In terms of how the academy has been thinking about it over the last few years, you know, we saw this movement coming maybe five years ago that telemedicine was be becoming more something that would be more mainstream and not just in rural areas. And so um, we began thinking about having a sleep-specific telemedicine platform and investing in that. And the product is um, really outstanding, Sleep TM. The, the issue is twofold. One is um, reimbursement uh, for telemedicine in general is still a challenge. It's getting better, but it's still a challenge. Mm -hmm. And two, um, many um, 
practitioners are part of big health systems, like yourself, like you just mentioned, like I am, and to get our institutions to adopt a telemedicine platform that is sleep-specific um, can be a challenge. So while, telemed while um, this, the ASM is pushing Sleep TM, of course, as, as a great product for sleep practitioners, I think the biggest thing we've done by doing this and talking about it and going out is is pushing the needle on using telemedicine every day or regularly in our in our sleep practices. You know, the American Academy Sleep Medicine Foundation um, has supported countless researchers in in many different career stages, and I'm I'm an example of that. Um, do you think other organizations um, are doing their fair share for sleep um, specifically? And you know, without naming names. Um, do you think that there is enough uh, interest in sleep research from other um, similar foundations uh, across the board? Um, so the research by organizations like the ATS and CHEST absolutely helps to fill research gaps in things like hypersomnia, sleep apnea, um, insomnia, and, any, and a lot of other um, high-impact research areas needed to advance our field. Um, and... Ultimately, what we want, you know, I think we all have the goal of um, improving health outcomes in patients with, with sleep disorders. I think we can always do better across the board. Um, and so the ASM Foundation has just gone through a major um, strategic planning and um, added um, areas like development. I mean, I think the, the sleep field should want to be um, like um, the cardiology field. We need to have... Um, a lar large funds of money in, in foundation in foundation grants that supports research in our field, and I think mm -hmm. the more we can we can all be doing to move the needle on that, the better. I couldn't agree with that more. As someone who does a lot of cardiovascular research, I think we we need to do more, and we're quite behind. So we're investing, but we're as a field we're still in our infancy in terms of really uh, you know giving out funding sources to the to the pipeline and the people who need to do the research for us yeah and and you know you you touched on the young investigators research forum which you know in my opinion has really been a huge success and has been you know an attraction for fellows i i remember when i was a fellow and just looking forward to it and it was it was just great to meet folks um pursuing uh, either pursuing a career in research or established researchers so just wondering if you can comment how this program has done in terms of actually providing a pipeline of young investigators who then, you know, are going on to sustain the future of sleep medicine, specifically the research aspect. Yeah, so, I mean, this this is something that um, the academy is um, uh, really really proud of. So the the Young Investigator Research Forum, or the YERF as it's affectionately called, is a three day research retreat. Um, and it, the, the goal is, is to aid the career development of promising young investigators in clinical and translational sleep medicine research. Um, and it really provides an opportunity for early career investigators to further their, their grantsmanship skills and shape their sleep and circadian research interests, uh, quite frankly, into fundable projects. Um, it's, in its, it's in its 11th year, uh, and I think about... Um, let me back up. The the YERF is in its 11th year and to date has supported more than 250 early career sleep and circadian investigators that have attended wow. the forum. So Go Dr. Ahead. Rosen, how does 
how does someone become the president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine? And as a female myself, how, how did you accomplish such an important and, and massive task uh, as, a, as a female leader? So I was wondering if you can help our listeners um, just to take us through a brief journey of, of how you did it, um, because I think a lot of us are interested in, it, in learning more about it. Oh, sure, I'm happy, I'm happy to answer that. So the, um, my own personal journey through the academy has actually been a little bit atypical. Um, and just briefly, I'll say that I, what I, I was a new program director of a, of a new sleep medicine fellowship, and I had um, experience in both my um, pulmonary fellowship here and my internal medicine program here in education and knew that there were essentially support groups and listservs of other program directors sharing ideas with each other across specialties. And so what I really wanted was a listserv. And in that vein, I tried to get all of the newly formulated um, program directors in sleep medicine organized. And um, that basically... uh, from wanting a listserv to having a lunch um, at one of our sleep meetings, um, we became a, um, a committee, essentially, of the ASM, all the program directors. And mm-hmm. through that forum, I was able to, um, uh, I guess, be recognized as a leader and um, be engaged with the board and was subsequently um, applied to be um, a board member. So that's how, that's sort of how I got on um, uh, with actually not much engagement with the um, ASM previously, quite honest, other than going to the meetings. I wasn't really involved in committees otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. But what I would say to the, to the average listener is that um, um, you should um, get involved in um, organizations that you have that meet, that are tracking issues and dealing with issues and tackling issues that are important to you um, and where you can find community outside of your institution and across the sleep field. And, and there's many of organizations that do that, and many of us are involved, as you are, in, in multiple organizations for these communities. And then I would say, uh, in terms of being a, a woman getting to this point, um, I, I feel incredibly fortunate that I have had a, a lot of great mentors that have been, believed in me and been supportive of me and that I have a life partner that is uh, very balanced with me in my own um, personal life so that I can juggle all the things that I juggle. But I can mm-hmm. I can speak very freely about the ASM in saying that we um, very much are embracing diversity and inclusion and that we understand that diversity equals excellence and that getting a diverse group of people around any committee table, the board table, the executive committee table is how the organization becomes excellence and continues excellence and can meet the mission that I stated earlier of um, improving our field and improving patient care in our field. Next, I asked Dr. Eileen Rosen to summarize and give us some take-home points. Um, I personally think this is a great time to be in the field of sleep medicine, and I I think the future of academic medicine has a lot of possibilities, um, particularly as 
we think about the pipeline programs that I mentioned before, but also mm-hmm. as all of us in our field, there is a lot of um, inner collaboration that's been um, really starting in the last um, 12 to 18 months um, at all of the organizations that have interested parties or an interest in sleep medicine and, and care for patients with sleep disorders. And unifying in this way um, can only um, do what's best for our patients and, and ultimately will help keep our field going. That concludes our podcast on the topic of academic sleep medicine, past, present, and future, with an emphasis on the future. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today and our guest experts for sharing their important insights on this very important topic. I agree with our speakers today that the future of academic sleep medicine is bright and there is a need for interdisciplinary and collaborative approach in order to maintain a pipeline. We look forward to bringing you the next podcast from the American Thoracic Society Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology on an important sleep-related topic. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day.